Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Easily one of the most influential and respected business platforms in the world is the Harvard Business Review. It also may be one of my all-time favorite publications. Well, my guest today is Sarah Green Carmichael, and Sarah serves as one of the three senior editors at HBR. Her role requires her to scout all those amazing authors we read, as well as sets her up to research, write, and edit some of the most fascinating articles around. In addition to those creative outlets, Sarah is also host of the HBR IdeaCast podcast and head of HBR's video program. I first met Sarah at HubSpot's inbound conference last year in Boston when she was interviewing Slack's CMO, Bill Mikaitis. What I was most struck by with Sarah was her very human approach to curiosity. Her training and background as a sports columnist and journalist for the Boston Metro, not to mention her longstanding work with HBR, sets her up nicely to cut through the noise of our content-saturated lives and get straight to the kind of signal that creates real meaning. This gives our readers and listeners like you and me a chance to consider these insights in such a way that we can actually do something with them. I invited Sarah on to Converge to help get our head around what the greats do on the biggest stage of business. So you and I might apply those same insights on whatever stage we find ourselves on. People who rise up the corporate ladder are the ones who are able to sort of figure out what do I need to do to get ahead? What do I need to do to make this sale? What, what is the shortest line between two points? And it's almost like a puzzle or a game. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Sarah Green Carmichael, welcome to Converge. Thank you so much for having me. You are a journalist. You write for a senior editor for a Harvard Business Review, and you're a host at IdeaCast, as you know. And the audience that we have here are folks that are, they're not in that space of big business. And yet often they'll they'll be inspired and read, you know, the in-depth kind of research stuff that you guys do. And they're intrigued. They'll, they'll read other uh, publications as well. But oftentimes, uh, independent creatives, they feel like a little bit a step away, like they're not quite in the corporate culture or they're just trying to work out everything on their own. And one of the things I really appreciate about you is you write and interview and kind of care a lot about things like people working too hard or uh, what it's like to, to approach work, any kind of work around business by gender, especially for women. And I also love the kind of how you focus so much of your writing on very practical things like the daily routines of an individual who's in business and how they can maximize that or how to listen better, these kinds of these kinds of tactical efforts. And that's the stuff in particular that I think our, our listeners care a lot about. And I'm wondering, first of all, given your past and how you got to where you're at, could you share a little bit about that journey and why you care about these more mundane things like work and, and routines? Well, I think in a strange way, I think we all probably feel like we're still little kids pretending to be adults. And I think that's true in business, even in big business. I think 
even very seasoned senior executives feel a little bit sometimes like they're playing dress up when they put that suit on. And I think, you know, whether we're a sort of solopreneur or working at a small company, you know, running our own agency, or we're a very successful CEO, I think we're all just people bumping into each other, sort of trying to do our best. And we're all trying to overcome those human foibles and challenges and and have a basically earn a living and and get to do the things we love to do. And for some of us, that's our work, but there's also, it's sort of more complicated than that. So mm-hmm. that is really what drew me to do this work and to come and work for Harvard Business Review. I think for a long time, I thought I wanted to be a political journalist. And I did actually start out as a research assistant to Ellen Goodman, who for many years was a syndicated columnist out of Boston. When I was working for her, she was the most widely syndicated female op-ed columnist in America. And that was a tremendous experience. And I learned from that and learned from sort of watching her work and her sort of coming back to some of the same issues again and again, that I did not have the sort of tenacity and thick skin really needed to be a political journalist. You know, I, I have intense admiration for people who do that and a lot of admiration for her, but that I sort of realized after a couple of years that I was going to get burnt out really quickly if I stuck with that. Mm. Um, so I pivoted to sports journalism, which was always sort of a passion of mine. And then after sort of maybe four or five years of doing that, I, I became really interested in the way the team was put together, the clash of personalities, what the general manager was doing as he, often a he, would construct this team. And that's ultimately what led me into management writing. It's funny that you call it management writing because, again, it, it strikes me as, as um, being human in business uh, and working with others, which, of course, includes management. But and, and as you had a chance to do the work that you're doing, it strikes me, too, that you you've had a chance to be exposed to some pretty amazing practitioners, like people who are just like top of game. And then in life, like all of us, we get to run into folks who aren't at the top of their game. And I'm, mm. I'm wondering when you think about those, the contrast of those two, the top tier a game folks that are just, you know, at, at every stage of your career, you've had a chance to run up against them in contrast with just everyday folks that are at a disadvantage. I'm guessing some of it is just talent or skill, but some of it is work, like they're practicing certain things. And I'm wondering if you could just comment a little bit on what you've noticed about super high performers and folks that, gosh, if they were tooled a little differently or reoriented their life a little bit, they would get a, a much better result, but they, they're not. They're making these kinds of perennial rookie mistakes. So I think that's a really interesting question. And I think if you, it might be easier to almost think about it in terms of like a school analogy. So when you were a student, I think when we're students, a lot of us conflate getting good grades with learning. And I think one way to approach that for some students is to separate them out and to realize that learning is one thing that you can do on your own schedule, on your own time, the topics you care about. And getting good grades is really about figuring out what the teacher wants and delivering it in the most efficient way possible. And I think the people who often rise up the corporate ladder are the ones who are able to do that, to sort of figure out, what do I need to do to get ahead? What do I need to do to make this sale? What, what is the shortest line between two points? Get to where I want to go. What are the criteria? How do I fill them? How do I show that I've filled them? And it's almost like a puzzle or a game. And I think when you think about it that way, for me, I, I see those people almost separating that out from the sort of deeper, more meaningful stuff that's important to them. But it's like by playing the game, you give yourself the room 
to have the sort of, okay, this is my passion project. This is my really meaningful part of my job. And Mm -hmm. I, I make room for that by sort of playing this other game that maybe isn't quite as meaningful, but that's sort of ultimately how you get ahead. Do you have any kind of favorite examples of folks that uh, where they've actually leveraged one particular skill in that game mode as opposed to just leveraging their intellect or kind of exposure to ideas? Yeah, well, I would say, um, you know, there's a lot of examples from the arts, actually. For instance, some writers will say that they will write for a certain number of hours every day or write a certain number of words every day and then they stop. So in a way that's like kind of combining them. You're you're saying I require this amount of output for myself and that's sort of how I know I'm tracking against my goals. But then I stop. I don't make myself write, you know, 14 hours a day. I write for three hours a day or I write 2,000 words a day or, you know, I don't know, whatever right. it is. Well, we, we, we had a, a past guest we had on was Buster Benson, who started this great little website called uh, 750words.com. And it's a gamification of writing every day. And we've actually started this thing called Weave Writer, where we're, we're helping folks who want to develop the habit of writing, where they're, they're just kind of hitting some mark and they get badges and these kinds of things to encourage them to move in that direction. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, it's sort of like that, I guess. I would say, you know, it's a little bit like a like just kind of a way of of keeping track of what you're doing. Another thing would be maybe you always make sure that at the end of the day you call it quits when you're on a roll, not when you're stuck. If you, you know, pause your work when you're stuck, it's really hard to restart it again. Mm-hmm. If you tear yourself away when you're sort of on a roll, then the next time you come back to it, you'll be eager to get going. So like, you know, it might be just as simple as that. Mm. Well, it's funny, you spend a lot of time around, obviously, you're a journalist, you're a writer, but you also help a lot of other people write or tell their stories, not only their own personal stories, but their brand stories, especially top tier CEO types. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about if someone is at home and they're wanting to leverage this habit and they're wanting to kind of lean in, what are some better and worse ways of telling your story? That's a really interesting question. I would say there's no right or wrong way to go about it, but there are a few things that I tell the authors I work with to sort of help them get going. So one is to start with what you want people to do differently after they've read your story or heard your story. So start from that point and then work backwards. Ideally, the reason we're sharing something is to, you know, improve the world, improve someone else's reality, you know, drive change, persuade someone. So start with that and then kind of work backwards and then think, figure out how you're going to get there. I would say a big thing to do is to realize that flaws are interesting. Mistakes are interesting. Hmm. It would be a very boring narrative if no one ever made any mistakes. You know, if you think about like most novels, they're full of characters making mistakes and that's why they're interesting. So even in business, the, the kind of writing I do, if I'm working with a CEO who's talking about how he turned his company around, for instance, Mm -hmm. I would want some texture in there about, well, first I tried this and it didn't work, but I learned from that to try this other thing, which did work. So some of that texture and character can be interesting. And then finally, I would say, think carefully about what the structure of the narrative, the structure of the story would be. Mm. You can kind of follow a simple beginning, middle, end structure. You can kind of start in the middle and then work backwards, sort of start in medias res, if fancy people would call it the mm-hmm, Latin mm-hmm. term, um, and then go back to the beginning and explain. You can kind of zigzag between two different scenarios and, and build tension that way. But but definitely think about the structure. Don't just sort of blurt it all out as it comes to you. Yeah. 
So when you think about folks, well, it's funny, again, back to our audience, there's folks that are at home going like, okay, that's interesting for people to tell their stories. But I think there's also a lot of independent creatives who who don't take advantage of the opportunity to tell their story. They don't really see the advantage of being able to, in very precise, interesting ways, walk people through a, a narrative that connects with the audience. Talk a little bit about the importance of being able to both tell your story as a leader of a small business or any size business and being able to tell your brand story in a meaningful way. Hmm, that's an interesting distinction. So I would say no matter what kind of story it is, human beings love stories. Our brain loves stories. There's a lot of really interesting research out there that shows kind of what happens in the brain, the chemicals that are released at different parts of the narrative. So don't underestimate the power of story. Even a short, like one-minute story can be really powerful. That's what a lot of Super Bowl commercials are, for instance. Hmm. But I would say in terms of telling your personal story, you can try to connect it to the brand story. You can also just sort of have a personal story you tell to people to get them to follow you. I mean, that's what a lot of leaders do. That's what a lot of, you know, political candidates try to do. You, you tell these stories in a way to make yourself more human and to have people see themselves in you and create a, a bond. And a way telling brand stories, I think, is similar. You're sort of trying to create a, bo a bond and you're, you're sort of trying to convey what your values are, the values of the brand, and to, to make those concrete and shareable. You have done a lot of great writing around women in the workforce, and um, I'm wondering in those kinds of discoveries, what are some good and bad advice for women in particular in this moment? And by the way, a lot of our, our listeners happen to be independent creative women uh, who they found themselves as freelancers, for example, because maybe their spouse lost their job in 2009 or, you know, and they, they just try to to turn their talent into making money or they, they just got exposed to something and there's no barrier to entry and they decided to throw their, their ability or skill set in the hat and now they're competing uh, in a very kind of broad and open wild, wild west marketplace. But I'm curious, where have you seen women in particular, especially ambitious women, do well for themselves or, or where have they been tripped up they, where they just kind of, they didn't need to, but if, they, if they'd had this little insight, they would have had an easier way to go about things. So that's a tough question, because I think, for me, it's not women who need to change, it's the world who needs to change. And when we talk about what women can do differently to sort of game the system or sort of win dis despite an unfair system, I always try to keep that in mind, because really it's about winning on an uneven playing field. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Well, well let, let me back up, because I think I framed the question poorly, because... So I have three daughters, and one of the reasons why I'm asking the question is because my three daughters are going to be in the workplace at some point in the future, and I want them to both acknowledge the game that they're jumping into was kind of built by a bunch of men, at least initially, and now we live <laughs> in a very different world. And there's smart ways to navigate kind of foreign territory that you didn't engineer and, and not as smart ways. And I'm, that it's kind of more the spirit of that, because it seems like changing the whole system is a little little overwhelming, but... To navigate the system well, it's a, it seems like there, there's got to be better and worse practices. Right. I know. This is just my inner idealist and my inner realist sort of <laughs> fighting with each other. I think basically, you know, my most sort of cynical self is sort of like, okay, take the world as it is. You know, if you were going to be really Machiavellian about it, what you would do is you would accept that you are supposed to conform to these feminine norms and you would just do that and you would kind of make it somehow work anyway. So when you had an idea, you would express it in sort of non-threatening language so it wouldn't offend the other people in the room. And when you negotiated and asked for more money, you know, you would have to somehow do it in this kind of 
Sheryl Sandberg-esque judo way that she describes in Lean In, where she talks mm-hmm. about how she sort of made it seem like it was a good idea for the company to give her more money on behalf of the company. I'm like, yes, that's a great advanced ninja move. I don't know if I could pull that off. But I think if you, you know, sort of going back to what I was saying in the very beginning, we're all human sort of bumbling around in this in these organizations. And most people, I think, have good intentions. So I think to the extent possible and in those individual one-on-one interactions, I would say, especially if I was talking to like women from the next generation coming up, like go for everything, do mm. everything, say yes to every opportunity that you get. And you know, you will have to probably work your butt off and work harder and be better than your male peers. But in the end, that will be recognized. I mean, there's a study that we published, I think back in 2009 by Herminia Ibarra from INSEAD, where she surveyed all these managers and all the women were rated more highly on, I think it was like nine out of 10 leadership competencies than the the men. Mm. So like, it's not a, a question of are women competent or not. I think part of the reason that she showed women reading higher actually was evidence of bias. It was the women had to be better in order to get the promotion. Mm. And I think it's a, it's a tricky juggling act. It's about being sort of coming across as warm and likable and leading by consensus while at the same time being very, very organized and just ruthless about how you spend your time and what, what you're prioritizing. It's funny. I, one of my former bosses, I used to work at a small liberal arts college where I taught and my boss, she's this amazing powerhouse of a woman. She was also about four and a half feet tall, Japanese. And the reason that's relevant is because like in every context she was in, she was always the smallest person. And she also didn't even have a terminal degree and was at this pretty advanced school, but she kept getting promoted to this, these levels. She was a VP at the time. And I asked her once, like, how did she find herself in this position without having a terminal degree, without having the the stereotypical ways to get into the position that she's in? And she said, candidly and off the record, well, I've just worked under an incredible amount of incompetent people and found a way <laughs> to get it done. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and, I, I, and I think there's something in there that if people are up again, and I know there's listeners at home right now, whether they're in a, you know, in a company or trying to just navigate life in the marketplace as an owner, there's folks that are just, they're up against it and it's, it's harder for them. And they're really tempted, I think, to just kind of play the victim card consciously or unconsciously and say, it's just so hard. But it's ironic because when I think of Jane, uh, who I used to work for, she didn't have that attitude. She actually saw it as an advantage to be put into a position of challenge that her male peers actually didn't have to face and therefore didn't figure out how to be resilient or how to be stronger in the midst of it. Do you think there's anything to that, that kind of assessment? In a way, I think it sounds like she's made the best of a bad situation. On the other hand, if I were thinking about like the world I would want for my kids, I wouldn't want them to be in that situation. Yeah. So it's, it's just a tough call. I do think that you know, there is something... Well, you used to write in sports. When teams had a tougher schedule than others, if they could get through those, run those gauntlets, weren't they at an advantage than over over the teams that had a lighter schedule? You know, that is a good point, and that is true. And definitely, you know, you see that in, in all realms. In sports, you know, you, you play either up or down to the level of your opponent. You know, if you only practice against easy opponents, you're not as good as if you practice against tough opponents. And that's, for instance, I think one reason the Williams sisters are so good is because they play against each other. And that's right. So they keep yeah. making each other better. It's a positive feedback loop. I do think that sexism has gotten more complicated. It is no longer the sort of very simple, straightforward, like, oh, well, we simply won't hire a female, you know, <laughs> 
like, oh, <laughs> Miss Money Penny, like take out my trash or what? You know, it's not like that anymore. It's, it's right. sort of more complicated than that. It's, I, I think it's almost less of a glass ceiling and more of a glass obstacle course where you are just sort of sprinting forward as fast as you can. And there's these barriers that you can't see. And you're, you sort of don't realize you've hit one until you look down and you have blood on your knee and you're like, how'd that get there? So I think as we sort of moved forward in fits and starts as women, as we've won more and more rights and, and moved into more and more positions of power, I think I think we run into trickier and trickier dynamics. Um, and it's not always obvious when something is sexism and when it's just someone being a jerk or, you know, some other obstacle that we've run into. Mm. You spend a lot of time writing around working in particular overworking and for the folks that I know that own their own small business I've heard it said that you know when they left their their day job and flipped off the man to go do their own thing they they got rewarded with it instead of having to work eight to five now they get to work 24 7 and justify it somehow because they're the owner and you've done some really good research around the impact of long hours and people deciding to never take a vacation or even even just the impact on like if you work a lot, it can have negative habitual, people can develop bad bad habits. Talk a little bit about what you've learned around working. And, and if you were sitting down over coffee with a friend who just went out on their own, based on what you know about overworking, what advice would you give them? So it's tricky because especially when you are like the just starting your own company, it's really hard. I think that's the hardest situation of all. If you are being made to work 80 hours a week by a, an unfair boss or you know you are in a big organization and you that's the norm you can push back against that and there will be other people there to kind of keep the projects going forward if you are saying you know no more I've had enough if it's your own business I think it's really hard to set those limits that said the research on overwork is really alarming i mean just the the impact on your health alone is terrifying it is a huge contributor towards all kinds of heart problems it is a huge disturber of sleep patterns which it, if basically the research on sleep is really important to look into too i mean sleep is a huge determiner of our health there's even studies out there that have shown a link between working long hours drinking more which can be a serious health issue as well. So the health impacts alone are alarming. But then there's all this other research that shows it doesn't even help you get more done. <laughs> so people are working harder, but they're now is that just a working harder, smarter thing? Or because I'm with you, like as a small business owner, it does feel like there's never an end to the kinds of work that I can do. And it does seem like there's a big difference between folks who work smarter and work harder. But can we leverage things like technology and other things to, to at least have a, cha- a fighting chance without limiting the length of our, our days? I think we have to be careful because I think technology is often the thing that sucks us back in. I know, you know, I love my iPhone. I always have it with me. And sometimes it's just like a strange reflex. Like my thumbs have kinds of brains of their own and I'm going in to check Facebook or just do something kind of fun and silly. And suddenly I'm opening up my work email before I even really realize that it's happening. I think the main thing to remember is that your brain only has so many good hours in it every day. Most people's brains can do six hours of meaningful work every day. That's like real brain work. So then add on to that two or three hours of meetings and you have a full day of work. And I'm sort of thinking here of meetings as being kind of not the real brain work, although I realize right. for a lot of people that's where the real work happens. Right. So you can easily see how you could get a full day out of that. I think the challenge becomes when it's 
10 o'clock at night and you're thinking, oh, I'll just log back on and do some more email. I mean, at that point, your judgment is impaired, even if you don't realize it. It's taking you longer to, to complete tasks. You are starting to make mistakes so that you'll just have to go back and fix those mistakes the next day. I mean, the, the research on this is overwhelming and compelling. And even though I know this research and have written articles about it, I find myself doing this too. So I know it's super hard to resist that kind of siren song of like, oh, I'll just check off three more boxes on my to-do list. But it's really important to resist and set limits and put the phone down, put it in the other room and just walk away. Well, what I love about the way you're framing that is it's not just in a kind of popular culture, we need work-life balance and stuff. Like I, I resist that kind of default proverbial kind of push, but what, cause, but what I'm hearing you say, it's actually far more pragmatic that we can be so much smarter with our time in terms of getting a return on those investments. And sometimes it's just better. You're going to, if you just go and go to sleep another 30 minutes compared to doing 30 more minutes of really bad emails, the next day you're going to benefit from it. Is that fair? That's totally fair. And I think to your earlier question about sort of working smarter, working harder, I think, you know, there's a reason that the most efficient people I know are mothers of young children because they have no time. And so they get to the office and it's like, okay, clock's ticking. It's a sprint to get as much done as I can. And then I'm leaving because I have to go pick up my kid because daycare charges by the minute. You know, you just see them shift into this gear. When my, when my boss had a kid, I, I told her, she came back to work after maternity leave. And I told her, you know, you talk faster now because she just like wouldn't even want to waste seconds, you know, in between sentences. And so I think that in a way of more of us had that mentality of like, okay, I'm at work. It's 9.01 a.m. and I have to leave at five o'clock on the dot and I'm going to work for the next eight hours and I'm not going to be distracted by Facebook. I'm not going to be distracted by a co coworker. I think we actually would be able to get more done and we wouldn't feel like we had to check in at night because we didn't get anything done during the day. Okay, last topic, um, and it has to do with learning. Because uh, again, the independent creative, I think they don't have the benefits of a professional development budget or a kind of in-house trainers that are coming to their office to make sure they're good. And it's like they're the whole thing and they're, they have to take responsibility. And you you do host an amazing resource with the IdeaCast podcast and, and HBR itself. I mean, as a senior editor there, you put out, I think it's one of my favorite, favorite publications on the planet because it it's so accessible in your summaries and also the deeper dives, but also it's just so good. Like it's, it feels like it's the gold standard of great, not just kind of clickbait writing, but like real <laughs> substantive. If I took this and applied it, it would make a big difference. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, and even if it's self-serving, because I, I really do think the, <laughs> the, the things that you guys are, are creating are really best in show. And how can folks who are independent creatives take advantage of it? Because I think if I'm in a, a corporate culture and I can have, I can do a write-off or I can have my budget cover <laughs> a line item for subscription to HBR, that's, that feels easy, a no-brainer. But for some folks, like that's a really big deal. What Where are they making their few dollars that they can go invest in? Should they be investing in things like HBR? Or should they be taking advantage of things like, you know, really great podcasts like IdeaCast? Or are there other things that if you are giving advice to your friends over coffee, how can they kind of create their own professional development plan uh, when it's all on them to do it? That is a wonderful question. And thank you for saying all the nice things about HBR. I was like, keep going. Don't stop now. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually can say more. I, I, I actually get no, a subscription. No, 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 no I'm so funny. I, like I, I'm not funny, but it, it is funny how often... I'm an enthusiast by nature, and every time I come across something that I like, I, I become their salesman, and I am an HBR salesman. It's yeah. hilarious. So That's fantastic. And I'm not alone. 
So thank you for saying that. So here's what I would say. I would say for one thing, you know, we do have a number of, I think it's now like you can get five articles on the website before you have to register. And then you get another 10 before we make you pay anything. And that's every month. So every month, every calendar month, it starts over again. So you can get a fair amount of free content on hbr.org without paying us at all. Of Mm -hmm. course, I would personally love for you guys to subscribe, especially because that's how my salary is paid. But so there are great free resources out there. I do think podcasts are a fantastic way to learn. Obviously, there's our podcast, there's your podcast, there's a lot of business podcasts. Some of my favorites are not even about business. I mean, I think there's something to be said for just a certain amount of your professional development should be totally random. I mean, it should be just like, I'm interested in this random thing and I'm just going to see where it goes and let it develop because who knows. So whether it's sort of reading a history book or taking a cocktail class or you know, something totally unrelated to what you're doing. I think that's how you sort of keep that creativity sort of burbling along. So that's one thing, because if you if you make it feel too much like work, you're not going to do it. And there's also just a ton of research out there about how important it is for the brain to play and how play is actually a way that our, our synapses kind of connect and fire. And, and, and so that's really important. In terms of kind of other stuff, I mean, I think it's really important to have mentors and sponsors, you know, even sponsors and mentors are sort of different things, but you know, what do you, what do you think of coaches? And, and by the way, as a, as a qualifier, I am one, we do that here. We have coaching. So, and it, but it's okay to be critical of it. We're, we're wide open, but is, can that play any kind of positive role? I think if you have the money for it, it can be a great experience. I, I do think though, that if you're on a tight budget, I, I would probably not necessarily use that budget on a coach. So I I say like, you know, depending on how much money you have, like go do it, pay for it. Yes. But if you're like talking about people on super tight budgets who aren't even sure if they can subscribe to a magazine, then I would say probably coaching is a little bit too much of a spend. By the way, as a side note on the HBR site, I love that when I first was going on to to check out free article thing, at first I thought it was, oh, you only get five or 10 or whatever it is for life. And I was in this mindset of like, oh, I, I got to pick this one and gosh, I picked the wrong one. What's going to mean? But it's every month, like it resets and that's incredible. And, and I, I'm with you. I think it, that's a great way to test out how valuable it really will be for you and to give yourself, you know, 60 days of reading good articles and seeing how you apply them and to see if it makes sense. I would totally encourage folks at home to, to do that as a starting point. And I think you're right. I think they will find themselves subscribing quickly but the other part that I love about what you guys offer aren't just isn't just the magazines, it's all the other publications. Can you just quickly yeah. comment on that? We offer the print magazine, the website, podcast, we have videos, we have books that we publish. Some of the books are sort of more instructional how-to guides. So if there's a particular skill you're working on, like you know, budgeting or you know, managing conflict, we have guides on that. I will say one of the web features that I love the most is, and I use this myself, if you register with the website, you can follow particular topics. Like say you want to get better at decision-making or say you want to get better at marketing. You can say, follow a topic and we will automatically populate your library with all the stuff on that topic. So the next time you sign in, it's all there. You don't have to worry that you missed something. So if you are like doing like a dedicated course of self-directed learning on a topic, I think that can be a great resource for people. Sarah Green Carmichael, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for all that you do at Harvard Business Review. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. This was episode two, season two of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. Music today provided by Triple Scoop Music, the leading music service for creative professionals. Find the perfect song for your next project at triplescoopmusic.com. Fastermind.co is home base for all things Converge. It's also where you can find exactly what you need to make real change happen. 
Like, ever want to ditch your not-so-smart smartphone addiction? Knock that out this week. No kidding. Find out more at fastermind.co. Until then, I'm Dane Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.